Okay, welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. I'm here with Jeff Wald. He is the author of The End of Jobs. Uh, he's a successful entrepreneur, founder of Work Market, a former reserved police officer. Jeff, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Um, well, we, we will dive into the book, but, but, but I do find it, it's an interesting, um, yeah, an interesting journey you've been, been through. So you, you were at NYPD officer for a while uh, in this journey to become a, an entrepreneur and now author. Well, I will say this. I mean, you know, I started my career as an M&A banker with JP Morgan, went off to business school. And then when I got back, you know, in business school was the 9-11 terrorist attacks. And one of the many benefits of business school is you meet all these people from different walks of life. There were a lot of military people at my school. And um, I said to them, I'm like, I'm, I'm joining. I'm joining up the military. They're like, no, 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 no. Let us fight the fight. You, your place is in the private sector. You keep the economy strong. We'll, we'll do the fighting. And, you know, I didn't really love that answer, but I appreciated that maybe my skill set was better in the private sector, uh, certainly than theirs, because these were unbelievably impressive men and women. Uh, but when I got back to New York City, I learned that there was a program within the NYPD called the Auxiliary Units, and that allowed me to serve, in a sense, my certainly my community, my city, and in, in a very small sense, my country. Uh, but not derail my career. And so okay. while I was building Work Market, while I was building my startups that I did before Work Market, uh, I spent uh, the better part of 10 years as a reserve or auxiliary or volunteer officer within the NYPD. And it was an amazing experience. And I'm so glad that I got a chance to to serve in, in some capacity. Wow, that's um, that's impressive that you made space for that. Yes, because um, building startups is, you know, it's not, it's not like a nine to five. <laughs> it is not a nine to five. It is. It is. And I remember I was, it, I don't remember what day. Well, it was someday I was sitting there and I was directing traffic. There was some huge thing and, you know, whatever. And like four of the engineers from work market came walking by and they were trying to cross the street. And I'm like, stay there. And I didn't, didn't know who they were. And I'm like, I'm, I was directing traffic and they were trying to cross the street when they shouldn't have. And they kind of were all staring. And I'm like, oh, and I went to like signal that they could start walking. And they're like, Jeff, I was like, we'll talk about it on Monday. Let's go. Let's go. Move it across. Move it across. <laughs> I love it. Um, wow. Yeah. And, and what, was, what was your like number one learning from your time uh, marshalling traffic and, and presumably other, other activities? You know, I did write an article some time ago uh, for the Huffington Post about what I learned at the NYPD and how it applies to startups. Um, but the number one thing is to ask for help. The most, the an officer will tell you the most powerful weapon they have on them is their radio. Right. That they can inform central command and other officers will get their ASAP. And so. The idea within a startup that you don't have an equivalent of a radio to ask your investors, your advisors, your friends, your customers, your team for help. The idea that as a founder, you have to sit there by yourself and try to power through is, is ridiculous. There are plenty of people that are willing to help, but you have to pick up the radio and ask. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, you know, I know, I know a lot of people who've been in that 
Uh, well, a lot of people kind of get burned out by those roles, right? When they're leading companies, um, I Very guess true. they take it all on themselves, right? Very true. I will tell you one of my favorite things about serving was getting to spend time with people that were outside of the work market sphere. Because when I was work market, right, it was 18 hours a day, seven days a week, and you're just going, 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 going. When you finally have a chance to breathe, yeah, you need to take a nap and go to the gym mm. for the first time in a month. Mm. But then having this social outlet for people that are just thinking about things entirely differently. And that was a wonderful experience. I still remain close with a number of people that I uh, had the pleasure of serving with. Well, wow. okay. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about work markets. So what was the, the genesis of that, uh, you know, idea and, you know, a little bit of the story of building it? So, you know, I will say this. When I was a venture capitalist, which is the stop I had before I started some companies, I remember I, I would I would sit with founding teams and I would hold up their business plan and say, the only thing I know for 100% certainty is it ain't going down like this. This plan is wrong. I don't know how it's wrong. I certainly don't know how to fix it. All I can do is hope that you're going after a big enough market. And more importantly, I can bet on you and your ability to adjust. And so with work market, I had spent the better part of two years working with my co-founder thinking about this business. What will we do? What would it look like? How would we approach it? And we knew we were going after a very big market. There was a study by McKinsey in 07, 08 that talked about that there was one trillion in on-demand spend in the world at that, at that point. But if companies had the systems and processes to manage on-demand labor at scale, that one trillion would go to three to four trillion. And I thought, well, that's a move you want to power. Like I, I want to be on that train. And you know, this goes all the way back to business school. Actually, I remember reading a paper called The Nature of the Firm by Professor Ronald Coase. Yeah, Nobel I'm Prize familiar with it. Yeah. And, you know, in it, his conclusions were a corporation is better off being a large fixed cost entity because the transaction costs and the friction of engaging people on demand was too high. I remember thinking, okay, well, that, I'm sure that was true in 1937. I doubt it's true now. And so I hired, hired, I engaged some advisors uh, at the university and I began a process of rewriting that paper. The nature of the firm revisited. Did not complete that. Didn't, yeah, that was, that was way too hard. I decided, you know what, I'm just going to get drunk a lot at school. That, that's crazy. I'm not doing that. So I, you know, I've been that, but I always had in my mind, wouldn't mobile technology and search technology and digital work and all these other things massively reduce those transaction costs? Of course they had, but if they reduced them enough, that corporations were better off in a more flexible or agile construct. And I think that the modern work environment would tell us the answer to that is yes, in some areas, and clearly still no in others. So I remember thinking, all right, well, we need to put this to work because if we can harness this notion of the agile corporation, building on Professor Kosa's work, if we can harness what the data McKinsey was putting forward in terms of the size of the potential market, can we build the tools that allow the buyer of labor and the seller of labor to connect directly? And the answer was we could, but it was much more difficult than we thought. The idea of connecting a corporation to an individual that wants to work is, is filled with a host of challenges that we didn't really appreciate or understand. And it took us you know, about $100 million to overcome before we finally were able to get it right, which we, I 
feel very confident that we did. And ADP, who ended up purchasing Work Market, also felt very confident that uh, that we got it right. Right, a hundred million dollars. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> it's a complex problem. It, look, it is a very complex problem. When I tell people that are going after the gig market, and I have the pleasure of advising a lot of companies in the space and investing in a number, I'm like, this is much more complicated than you think. This is not a consumer interaction where one person can just connect with another. So all you need is a means for them to connect, a means for them to engage, a means for them to pay each other, a means for them to communicate, means for them to rate. When you're dealing with corporations, you need to worry about procurement and HR and legal and the regulatory environment. And you need to set up all kinds of controls and data privacy and things like that that you just aren't your prime concern when you're just connecting a consumer to a consumer. Right. Right. And what were the areas of work that you focused on? Like, presumably you, you niched in a little bit. We always built the platform to be industry agnostic. To right. say, we will work with any industry, no issues. That said, one of the biggest mistakes we made, and I, I always think about the mistakes we made because I, at some point I'll build another company. But one of the biggest mistakes we made at Work Market is we didn't really have a marketplace full of people. And if you're going to connect companies to individual workers, the number one problem all companies have is they need more people. We thought the number one problem that they had was efficiency and the number two problem was compliance. And in some companies, those were flipped. And those were big problems. They were number two or three, but they were actually much further down. And we never really solved number one. So I say all this to say, we started in the IT services industry because my co-founder and I had relationships in that space. We knew the space. We knew how to, the IT service workflow worked. And we had a lot of people that we could put into the marketplace just from our experiences. As we tried to move into other industries, it became challenging to move into those industries. A, we didn't have the efficiency and the compliance stuff nailed in those industries. And so there were tweaks that always had to be done. But more importantly is we didn't have the people. And we never fixed this mistake. It was always in our mind phase two. Phase two, we'll build the phase one, we'll build all the enterprise tools. Phase two, we're going to build a marketplace. And we just never got there. Right. In those other markets. After, in those after other markets. IT, I would right. even say in IT services, we had a good marketplace, but we have a great one. And I would always go into meetings and say, you know, hey, this is work market. And they're like, okay, how many plumbers do you have in Cleveland? I would say, whoa, 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 don't worry about plumbers in Cleveland. I'm not here to talk to you about plumbers in Cleveland. I'm here to talk to you about efficiency and compliance. And we'd spend an hour going through our song and dance and how that worked and the tools we had. And at the end of the meeting, they'd say, this is amazing. I can see how your software is going to bring organization to the chaos we have engaging our freelance workforce now. This is going to be so helpful. But before you go, I have one last question. Um, how many plumbers do you have in Cleveland, though? Because I, what I really need is plumbers in Cleveland. And here's the thing, man. After five times hearing that, who's the dumb person in the room? Right. Me. I should have solved the first problem he asked me about and then the last problem he asked me about, which was plumbers in Cleveland. Because I would always tell people, even though we have a large IT services marketplace, don't assume that you will find a single person with the skills you want, in the geography that you want, with the availability that you want. You need to build your own bench, and we may give you the tools to do that. But people always just thought, no, I'll find people in the marketplace. And when they didn't, they would get very upset. Right. Right. But, but obviously you found, I mean, 
companies bought your software so there was enough value in just those problems you were solving that they lived with the fact you didn't have the people is, is that how it played it out? It's very true look we right. have thousands of companies still have thousands of companies that utilize the work market software and we've done very very well and we had a wonderful exit to our friends at ADP but I juxtapose that with our friends at Fiverr and Upwork that are doing hundreds of millions in revenue um, I don't know what ADP has said publicly about work market and what it does now but Upwork does more right. and it's valued and certainly an IPO at a much higher valuation than we did. And so, look, I am not saying this is a lament. First of all, problem, as you might say. Yeah, we did wonderfully. Our investors made money. My team made money. It was great. But I do think about the suboptimal points because, again, as somebody that's going to go do it again, I need to think about where did I make mistakes and learn from them as I think about startup number five. Right. Well, I must say you're sort of modeling that, you know, it's a bit of a cliche, no, modeling leadership behavior, but the fact you've been so immediately so upfront about, yeah, where you made mistakes, that's, that's refreshing from someone in you know, your position. Oh, I could write article after article on the number of mistakes we made. And I keep meaning to do it. Like here are the top five mistakes. I think I'm, I'm kind of waiting for my final payments from ADP to come through to make sure that they don't get upset because any mistake I made, they bought. So I'm not sure that they're going to love that. So I'm going to going to incubate this for a while, and then I will be a little bit more forthcoming. But I certainly am whenever I speak with people. Right, right. So that's work market. Um, and now, now let's come to the, to the book, uh, End of jo- Jobs. So why, you know, why, why then decide to write, write a book and this book in particular? Well, I'll tell you this. This book was born out of annoyance and frustration, which I think is how a lot of things kind of start germinating. Look, I had the opportunity to speak at a lot of conferences because I was a founder of Work Market, and we had built this incredible piece of software, and it was helping companies to transform their labor. But I'd be at these conferences, and I'd hear other people talk, either on the panel with me or before me or after me, and I'd think to myself, what the heck is this person saying? That's ridiculous. That That's not even remotely accurate. Like, how are they up there spouting us off? And it would annoy me because I am a very data-driven person. I'm a very evidence-driven person. And every time that I'd be on panels and somebody would say something, I'd go, oh, that's really interesting. What data do you have to support that point of view? So, oh, oh, I, I didn't, well, I don't, I don't have any. I'm like, okay, well then maybe, and this is the part I wouldn't say. I'm like, well, then maybe you should shut up. And just as an evidence, by the way, I was on a panel just the other week, just, just a few weeks ago. And somebody said, I think half the U.S. workforce, 50% is going to work remotely in the post-pandemic world. I was like, huh, that's really interesting. How do you juxtapose that with the fact that only 42% of the U.S. workforce can work remotely? Because clearly people in manufacturing and logistics and entertainment and transportation and a host of other industries can't. He said, oh, oh, I didn't know that only 42%. Of I was like, oh, but shouldn't you know that? Shouldn't you know that that's what can happen in the U.S. economy? So things like that I find very frustrating. So I started the book in the on-demand world because that was the world we knew. And everyone kept saying, oh, 50% of the workforce is going to be on-demand by 2020. I was like, no, it's not. Not even remotely close. That's... And so I started to put down on paper why that was never going to happen, what it was that actually drove the on-demand economy, and what are the big impediments to on-demand growing much greater, quite frankly, than 30, 35% of the labor force. Like, in my opinion, it will never get higher than that. 
And that slowly morphed over the years, and I mean years. It took me seven years to write this book uh, into, well, if we're going to look at the on-demand economy, we should look at the labor force writ large. And so the way I started to view the issue, if you will, is we need to look at history. We need to look at data. We need to think about how companies actually engage workers. And if we look through those lenses, and then we start to predict what may happen in the world of work, I'm not saying I'm going to be correct. I'm saying we have a higher probability of being correct because Hmm. the future is the future. I mean, there are all kinds of variables out there in the data that we are not appreciating, and there are technologies and all kinds of things that will change, behavioral changes, societal changes. So very difficult to predict five years out, even more difficult, 20, 40, forget about it. But we can at least have a higher degree of veracity, and we can at least substantiate our predictions. Right, right. Um, and so they break down like the the key you know, predictions that you're making in terms of of what's going to happen? Well, I'll I'll expand the question to say the the key takeaways. The first is this stuff is really complicated. And anytime there's somebody out there peddling some sort of simple solution, I'm not saying that they're always going to be wrong. That that's not, you know, I, who am I? I, what would I, what do I know? I would say, ask them what their evidence is. What is the data they're using to make that prediction? Because simplistic conclusions are usually incorrect. We can talk through some some very real world examples on that. Um, two is you can't paint anything in the labor world with a broad brush. You need to look industry by industry, job function by job function, in a lot of cases company by company, to really understand what's happening and how a new technology, a new process may impact the labor force. So those aside, some of the bigger predictions are there will be no net job losses from the robots and AI. Is very different than the zeitgeist of, oh, 50% of jobs are going to go. For some reason, everyone loves that 50% number. We know that. <laughs> I don't know why. Just It's half. Easy. So no net job losses to robots and AI, but we will have 10 to 15% of jobs lost. We'll just create more jobs. The big challenge that we will face as a society is retraining workers from the industries and functions that are dying, moving them into the industries and functions that are growing. And so the next is that the on-demand economy, while it is a very important part of the labor force and it is large and it is growing, it is not the future of work, certainly not in the way people think. And the last kind of big takeaway or conclusion is one that I've kind of tweaked since the pandemic because clearly when new data comes in, we should be agile ourselves and change our predictions. And that's the remote workforce will make up about 8% of the U.S. workforce. Again, remembering 42% is our natural limit, but the flexible workforce is going to be about 32, 33%. Flexible meaning less than 50% of the time you are outside of the office, so you're still going three days a week, but you will no longer have to kind of go into this nine to five, five days a week construct. You'll be able to be more flexible with your schedule. And that, by the way, was the point of the title of the book, The End of Jobs. It was not the end of jobs because technology and robots are taking our jobs. It was the end of this nine to five, one office, one manager job, moving to this fluid team-based work from anywhere, always on job. And that is certainly something that the pandemic has sped up. Right. Um, that's interesting. So, so what's the price of that 8%? That's a, that's a 
very small number, right? Eight percent, given how many people are working remotely right now. That's really true. interesting. True, true, true. Well, look, we should start with history and data. Pre-pandemic in the U.S. and most of my my research is is U.S. focused, although very applicable to anything in the OE, any country in the OECD, so any industrialized country. Um, pre-pandemic, three percent of the workforce work remotely, and definitions okay. are important here. Remote means more than fifty percent of the time you are not in the office. So if you go to the office three days a week and you're remote two days of the week, you are not considered a remote worker. You're considered as someone with a flexible work arrangement. And the 50% is very important because not only does it drive the infrastructure discussion at a company, do I need to give this person a permanent desk or can they hotel or hot desk? But it also has very important implications from a tax nexus standpoint as to where you're being taxed. So there's one area where 50% is very important as opposed to our prediction markets where they're not very important. Um, so we started at 3% when we came into the pandemic. And the 10 years prior, we had been at 1.5%. So we had seen a 100% increase because of the Zooms and the GoToMeetings and WebExes and Asanas and Basecamps and Jiras and all the things that were helping with project management software. Those, they, those technologies had empowered this huge move. But there were two big impediments to the remote workforce. One was the mindset. We all know the manager that says, oh, I don't care what the studies say, because all the studies will tell us remote workers are happier, they're healthier. In fact, we've had professors on this show saying exactly that, right? Yeah. They're more engaged. They have higher retention rates. It's better for the company. It's better for the worker. Like There is no data to tell us otherwise. And even the fear that you're going to get you're less likely to get promoted because you're not getting FaceTime with your bosses. That's not true, right? They even found that promotion rates weren't affected. And so we all know the person that said, yeah, yeah, I've read all the studies, but I think, I think productivity equals presence. I think magic happens when people are in the office together. So I want everybody in the office. We're hearing it from the the banking bosses, right? Your old uh, industry, right? 100%. Get back in the office. And uh, the second impediment was policies, procedures, and infrastructure. It's one thing to say Jeff can work remotely. It's another to make sure that there is a remote option on every single meeting, not, oh, Jeff's in this meeting, we need to add one, because that's going to fall through the cracks. There are going to be meetings and be like, I, I, where is everybody? Like, I, I'm trying. And security and infrastructure, in as much as it's one thing, another thing to say that Jeff can work remotely, if Jeff can't access all the company's systems from outside the four walls, then I can't do anything. So you really aren't empowering me to work remote unless you have the policies that support it and you have the infrastructure to support it. And in March of 2020, the mindset had to change and the infrastructures and policies had to be put in place. And so we saw this huge shift. Now, the question becomes the snapback to your point about banking bosses being like, we need people back in the office. There are some industries and some functions that are going to embrace this and move full forward. There are some industries and functions that are going to go, everyone get your butt back in the office. The productivity has been terrible. Because you can't paint with a broad brush. Even the studies that say all you know workers are better off. It's not every worker. It's not every function. It's not every industry. That's right. I it mean, the studies would say that creative work, majority, new projects, hundred benefit from being uh, uh, in person. And so we have this tech acceleration that occurred during the pandemic around digital work, around digital commerce, digital payments, digital currencies, blah blah blah. And people are using that data and starting to make predictions and not thinking about the snapback that's going to occur. God willing, it occurs soon where everyone goes, you know what? 
we're all vaccinated and we're, we're declaring this over. And even before then, companies will start going back to the office in mass. Uh, we don't know what the snapback is going to look like, but we can start to look at what managers are saying they want, at what workers are saying they want. And what you generally see here in this survey data is you see very few workers, 5% ballpark that say, I want to be back in the office five days a week, nine to five. But there are some, right? There are some workers that actually want that. And you also see very few workers that make the statement, I don't ever want to go to the office again. I want to be 100% remote. That's also 5%, maybe inching up towards 10. The middle 90% want a flexible work arrangement. Then we want to be in the office because we're social animals. We want to be around our colleagues. We want those serendipitous bumpins. We want those creative sessions that you just can't do on a Zoom. But we also want the flexibility to be able to not go to the office for a week if we need to, to take a break, to do this or that. And so that is where the world of work will reside. But again, we got to remember, we're looking at that in the context of the 42% that can do this, the 58% that have to show up because they work at Disneyland. You can't be a, you know, you can't be a ticket taker at Disneyland and work remotely. You right. actually got to be at the park. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that's quite, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting stat because of the number of sort of leaders that I hear of are starting to consider their property footprints and do we give up head offices and so on. But if it's only 8% of people who are going to work, you know, that suddenly uh, calls into question any major shift in terms of property portfolio or whatever. I will say the companies that I advise on this, the companies that I have the pleasure of just speaking with about this, there is this battle going on between de-densifying where they have to allocate more square footage per employee because people don't want to be jammed up anymore, even though we will have beaten this virus. Scars are going to stay and they're not going to want to be, you know, in bullpens together. So we're going to have to de-densify the offices, but we will have fewer people coming in and we're going to be able to hotel desk people. The general feeling or sentiment that I'm hearing is that all that math, again, broad brush here and very different industry by industry, function by function, is about a 10% reduction in office space. Okay. Right. That, that, that's what it will yield. Right. So significant, but not, you know, significant. Yet, but not radical, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Which is how things tend to go in the world of work. You see changes that are significant, but not radical. And so people that make predictions that are so radical, okay, it's possible. It's just never happened before, but it's, you know, it's possible. Right. Right. Um, Okay, well, let's talk a little bit about um, and taking your point that not all jobs are going to go on demand. In fact, perhaps much less than we think are going to go on demand. Um, what do you see? Because I've got my own views on this, having read the book. But interesting to hear you first. Like, what do you see as being like the great benefits of moving towards on demand, especially for people? This is a big, big human podcast. Like for for the people involved in that shift um, versus the big risks from a human perspective. So it's interesting. Every study that was done, McKinsey did one, the Bureau of Labor Statistics did one, uh, and Upwork, MBO Partners, always would ask people, are you happy being on demand? And the answer was predominantly yes. 80% of people would not take a full-time job if offered. Now, all of these surveys were done in the 2010 to 2020 timeframe, right? A period of economic expansion and economic growth. I don't know what those people would have said over the last year. Would they have viewed more security in being with big company? So look, the number one benefits are the flexibility 
people get in being in an on-demand capacity. That flexibility is more powerful as you move up the skill set chain. So, you know, if you're an advanced search engineer or advanced technologist in almost any field, you can say when you want to work, how you want to work, and people will do it because your skills are so in demand. As you move down to kind of being a temp at an Amazon fulfillment center during the holidays, you don't have a lot of flexibility in that context. And both of those people are on-demand workers. So the flexibility that is offered is usually the number one reason that people enjoy it. The ability to work on different things and the creativity that that engenders for them as opposed to being in, in one place. The ability to not have to deal with politics and corporate interactions and things like that. Positives. The negatives involve the security. And I always found it interesting that if I am a freelancer, and again, we're talking about a specific segment of the freelance market, not the entire on-demand market. But if I'm a freelancer and I'm very in-demand, I have like 14 clients on average. That means I have 14 points of failure. Whereas if I'm a full-time employee, I have one client. I have one point of failure. If that client is unhappy, if that client gets in trouble, I can lose my entire income in one swoop. A freelancer very rarely, if almost ever, does lose all of their income. They may lose some of those clients. But the security is associated with a full-time job. Okay. The second big advantage is that, at least in the United States, the social safety net is entirely predicated on the W-2 and being a full-time employee. Unemployment insurance, workers' comp, you can't really get those as a on-demand worker, as a freelancer. And so the social safety net is so predicated. Healthcare is more difficult to get. A retirement plan is more difficult to administer and do as an independent worker. And those are very big impediments to the independent workforce. The same is true around any kind of insurance. And so for me to try to procure workers' comp on my own, super difficult. Just super difficult. Mm -hmm. right? can be done. There's a great company called 1099 Policy that's out there doing this now. But they've created the first program to do this. Otherwise, for me to be covered for a job place injury, I'd have to buy a ridiculous policy that as an individual I really can't afford. And so those are some of the drawbacks and impediments. Right. But what's interesting as you say that is that you're coming back to that 80%. 80% are happier despite that, despite they don't have the insurance, despite they Very don't true. have this. But that security. was also during a period of economic expansion right, right, when right, all right. of those things that were the downsides were not as present because if you're making money, you can afford some of them anyway. Right. So I would be surprised as we see the new flock of surveys come out because these are generally things that are done annually. Um, if that 80% was true. Right. But would you still. expect it to have changed significantly or would you still expect the majority of, yeah? I, I will expect it to have changed significantly for a period of time because the pandemic, and I think we saw a lot of this in the pandemic of data curves kind of having huge drops and then huge bounce backs. And so I would expect a big drop followed by a big bounce back. Right, right. Yeah, but nonetheless, that, that, that's, you know, it's still, it's still very interesting that, you know, even in this period, whilst, whilst we were expanding, there was still, there was still, certainly what you read in the press was a lot of, disc, you know, the zero hours mm -hmm. contract um, yeah. and a lot of demonization of firms employing on-demand workers. And I think of, you know, the Amazons and their sort of mm -hmm. uh, auction, you know, for, for the parcel delivery um, prices and 
uh, yeah, and, and and I suppose the Ubers and the um, and and the other on-demand platforms, their participants striking or or yeah, protesting. And look, as with any new technology that comes on, and let's let's pick on Uber for a little bit. The Uber construct is this new technology that allowed all this new interaction, and shockingly, we didn't get it right at first. The way Uber went out with their business model, the way they're pricing, therefore the way they're they're compensating the people doing the work, which they view as independent contractors. In the UK, they just lost that case, and so now they have to be employees. In California, they thought they lost it, but then they were able to convince the people of California in um, in an election uh, to allow them to not lose it because people were basically asked, do you want to wait five minutes longer for your ride and spend another $2 in your ride, and therefore the worker has benefits, or do you want the ride right now and do you not? And people said, no, 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 screw those people. I, I want my Uber right now. We'll see how that plays out over time. The point being is that the new technology didn't jive with the social infrastructure, and therefore it had to adjust. And that, you know, for those that study history, that that's not a surprise. Not a surprise at all. We have to adjust to the new norm and both parties have to find the right balance. And the balance is not, and there were studies in California saying the average Uber driver is making like five bucks an hour after all their expenses. Not acceptable. Not acceptable for someone to be able to live on on, on, on that wage rate. And a violation of obviously minimum wage laws, which as a freelancer don't apply. So we need to adjust business models. We need to adjust regulation. Because one of the things you will certainly learn from history is that societies like stability. And if things get too out of whack with one entity, one class, one whatever, taking too much economic power, a reckoning will come. It will either come through higher taxes or it will come through social disruption or a host of other ways, but it will come. And society has to get back to some form of stability. I'm not saying equality. In fairness, history wouldn't teach us that, but they would say if it gets too unequal, it will come back. Right, right. Yeah, and that's and that's sometimes, I think, well, certainly the narrative, not that I've got any data for this, but certainly the narrative seems to be that the on-demand work style is exacerbating the increase in inequality, right? That is possible. I haven't seen any data to support that either. I think there's a lot of data around stagnant wages in the West uh, writ large in, you know, as with a lot of things in the world of labor, these are just supply and demand issues. You had a billion people enter the industrialized workforce and therefore time was going, it was going to take time to balance out labor wage rates. They're not balanced yet, but they're getting closer, I should Mm -hmm. say, closer. And, um, you know, so I'm not sure on demand is what's driving economic inequality. I think there are wage rate issues and the stagnation of wages in the Western economies for the last 40 years has driven a lot of economic inequality. Right, right. Yeah. Um, now, the other thing that you talk about, which I think is interesting, we get into this in your chapter eight, um, when you start to uh, explore the effect of robots and automation and how that's going to mix mm-hmm. with labor. Uh, and this concept, which I, which I hadn't come across before, but total talent, talent management. Oh, yes. TTM. Right. Yeah, TTM, where we, um, where firms are able to, I suppose, distribute work amongst humans and robots. I mean, 
part of it makes complete sense and it seems you know logical that that's the way we're heading but i was sort of slightly alarmed to think that we're going to lump in like labor resource even using that term like resources um with robots and like i'm going to sort of always bracket them all at the same and then just sort of juxta- juxtaposing that where you write elsewhere in the book about um this increasing value we're going to place on curiosity and creativity and the sort of human qualities so sort of how do you square that well, I think it's different industries and different functions working in different ways. And so, look, there are certain jobs that are going to require human creativity and empathy and things like that. And those jobs are growing and those jobs are more difficult to slot into a total talent management construct, but not fully difficult, not, not impossible. What AI allows us to do is to see data patterns in things that we didn't seem to see data patterns in before. And it allows us to automate and create standardization and processes. And this is why in the book, I try to make the argument around the first services revolution, because services are very difficult to find that repetitive high volume process. And it's that repetitive high volume process that generally gets automated. And so the idea of total talent management starts with, I need to understand what my people can do. Because I know where, or at least I have an idea as to where the world's going and what skills are going to be needed, what as a company we're going to need, in which geographies, and which availabilities. But I don't know, through most human capital management software, I don't know what my people can actually do. A manager might know what his or her team can do, but as a company, I don't have that data flowing up. Now, you have it in your on-demand workforce. Because if you're using a platform like WorkMarket, we will be very, here's your heat map of where all your skills are and how good somebody is. Are they a level five, a level four, or three? And what their availability is, you get all that in your on-demand workforce. You don't get it in your full-time workforce. And human capital management softwares are changing. ADP is actually leading this. And I will give full credit to their new platform, Lithion. It is the most advanced piece of HCM software on the market. And it is looking down at the individual level, right? What can that individual do? And, you know, work market has helped influence that roadmap and work market is tied into Lithion. And so you get a chance to see your entire workforce, your full-time workers, part-time workers, your temps, your freelancers, and other aspects of things that can do work like an AI system or a robot or a drone. And you get to understand, well, I have all of these things that could do the task that comes up. What is the most efficient labor resource to do that task? Most of the time, it is still a full-time employee. And we go deep into this in, in, I believe it's chapter six equation. That labor equation will still tell us that it should be an employee for a very, very long time. Like there's just, there's not much that's going to change that unless there's a wholesale change in the regulatory structure or some massive leap forward that I having studied this and spent a lot of time at the robotic facilities that just isn't coming in the next Mm. 20 to 30 years. So outside of those changes, not much is going to change. We're going to, as we've done with labor markets and before, we're going to slowly move forward. But a change that underpins this is this total talent management change, which is how do I understand all of the skills inherent in my organization and how do I marry those skills? How do I match those skills to all of the needs that I'm going to have to service my customers. And data allows us to do that in a way that we have not done before. And that that's the promise of total talent management. Right, right. And 
I mean, and that, that does make, you know, it does make sense. We, 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 it's almost as if as we, you know, as we continue to automate different parts of how we work, right, we, we're going to end up with a greater variety of ways to solve complex problems and greater set of resources at hand. Mm-hmm. And so the software is going to need to adapt um, to, uh, yeah, to cater to that, right? So, you know, I, I think that makes complete sense. I sp- the, the one reflection I had on this was the, the way that, you painted the picture was was very much in terms of sort of large scale platforms and firms interacting with you know individuals and freelancers right and that that basically being the dynamic i just wondered to what extent do you think the sort of the newer blockchain technologies which are based more on a sort of peer-to-peer style of networking around a particular market need and more autonomy of individuals and even bots and so on 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 such a network Do, do you see that having a significant role here Short answer is no, in as much as I and well actually let me take it back. The right answer that I should have to that question is is I haven't studied this enough to to really have an opinion. Now that said, here's my opinion. Um look, I understand the basics of blockchain technology and I understand the distributed ledger, but I'm not sure that that creates some sort of sea change in how the databasing structure within labor works. I I I don't I appreciate all the different. So I, I, I just I don't see anything that says, wow, I'm going to manage my workforce differently if I manage it on the blockchain. And I've seen a lot of companies try to create, you know, a blockchain version of Upwork or a blockchain version of Workday or ADP, and I've seen them get literally zero traction. I mean, zero. That's not to say in five years they may not be doing great and dominate, but right now I, I just. I'm at a complete loss as to how it would fundamentally change the labor resource management process. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I suppose as I reflect on what you said there, it probably only makes sense as long as there's a, almost a radical restructure of the, of, of the, of the economy in a sense to be away from firms sort of managing resources towards the to as i said like nodes on a network mm-hmm. coming to collaborate um on a particular on particular projects and to solve particular sort of market needs and but that is a, a major hallmark. restructure right right yeah look that that's a hallmark of the future of work in terms of the disaggregation of work into tasks and teams coming together and that is mm. that fluid team-based work from anywhere always on job but I'm not sure that, and I agree with you that it would have to be done outside of the firm structure in order for the blockchain to really become the organizing principle of the labor organizing resource management. That's a good term, right? But yeah. I, I just I don't see it. I don't see firms losing that kind of power because of all the benefits one has in organizing labor and resources and capital inside of a corporation. Back to Coe's, right? Back to where we started, right? Back to our Back friend to the firm, Professor yeah. Coe's. Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. Um, yeah. The other thing I just wanted—I I just wanted to pick on this because I just love it as an analogy. It doesn't really fit into the sort of the flow here, but I—I just—I just thought I'd highlight it. Is um, given all of that, we've talked about data and data management and so on. What I just love this little anecdote uh, that you bring up in, in chapter ten around a, a fundraising call center at a university, mm-hmm. um, where. Uh, they gave and their job was to raise money right for the university for, and, and they gave five five minute calls to people working in this call center with recipients of the scholarships and as a result of that call and connecting the people in this call center with the impact they're having in the world 
we saw a four time, 400% increase uh, in the number of calls that these operatives were making. And, and so it's like, in all of this, there's still room um, for this human connection and, and, and a sort of valuing the importance of human connection in all of this, right? That seemed to yeah, no shine out as the example. No question. Look, the example I, I like to point to is the ATM which I, excuse me, I talk a little bit about in the book. Look, the ATM wasn't disguising what it was trying to be. It's a machine that's automating the job of the teller. I mean, that's its name, automated teller machine. And yet, we still have bank tellers. Now, why? Why would we need a bank teller when I can do almost everything I need from that machine? Because in 1995, when the bank teller, when the ATM appeared in every single bank branch, in the United States, there were 500,000 bank tellers. And what did everyone predict in 1995 about the bank teller job? Oh my God, in 10 years, there'll be zero bank tellers. There are 600,000 bank tellers today. Oh. And a part of the equation, when we actually do the work, because again, simple, simple conclusions are almost always wrong. And the simple conclusion of, oh, ATM exists, therefore bank teller job goes, was dead wrong. What we did see is we saw a reduction from 21 to 13 of the average number of tellers per branch, because I no longer needed as many tellers in order to keep customers happy and keep it flowing. But we did see a huge increase in the number of bank branches because of normal economic growth and because of some deregulation that occurred in the banking industry in the United States. But people making these simple predictions didn't think about things like that. And you need to think about things like that if you're making predictions on labor. But the other thing, back to your point, is that I don't want to walk into the bank branch and only interact with a machine. Sometimes I do, but sometimes I want to go because I don't know what I'm doing and, I'm conf and I have a question and I want to make sure I'm doing it right. And I want to talk to that person. And that person sometimes will give me a lollipop and be like, oh, hey, thanks for coming into Chase. Thank you for your business. And if I walk into HSBC and they don't give me a lollipop and there is no person, then you know what? I'm going to take all my business to Chase which is why, even though a technology exists as a human, as a consumer, I want that interaction. The same can be said, by the way, for almost every single waiter and waitress in the world. The technology exists to completely remove that job. We do not need someone to come and tell us what's on the menu, tell us what the specials are. We don't need someone to make a recommendation. AI can do that. We don't want someone to tell us a wine pairing. The system can do that 100 times better than a waiter ever could or a waitress could. No disrespect to our sommelier friends, but I, I don't need somebody with that expertise. That's just data. And that's me saying, well, I'm in the mood for something that's like this. Boom, here are the things. Based on what you're eating, you should get one of these three wines. And yet, very few, if any, waiter or waitress jobs have been lost. Because as a human, I don't want the AI system. I want to hear what this person has to tell me about what's good tonight. I want to hear that. And I want to say, oh, what's that person having? Oh, they're having that. Oh, it's very interesting. And so the job doesn't go. Might it go over time? Sure, it might, but it just feels highly unlikely because as a human, I want that. And if I walk into a restaurant that's entirely automated, I'm probably not going to go back. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think, I think that's an important, um, you know, it's really important to hold on to, right? I think because a lot of people get fearful, don't they, about the future and the rise yeah. of AI and, and, and data-driven decision-making and algorithms, but, um, yeah, and the they human... like to make that statement of, 
oh, this new technology is therefore all, you know, oh, inside warehouses now there are robots that can move things around. So all warehouse jobs are going to go. Okay, maybe over time, but that's not how it actually works. Mm. And so if people take nothing else away from the book, I want them to take that point away that when somebody says, oh, this tech exists, all that's going to go, go, okay, well, maybe. Let's walk through how things actually work in that industry, what the competitive environment is, what the technologies can do, what the technology deployment looks like. Because just because a technology exists doesn't mean companies buy it all at once. They slowly deploy things over time. What the cobot scenario is where the human works with the robot, what the customer service aspect is. And now let's think about that function in that industry and start making some predictions about when or if jobs may go. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, for, and you having built a company, you know, company in this sector, having spent, as you said, seven years, right, got a book, should give people some, some comfort that we don't need to jump to the doomsday immediately, right? Not just yet. Not, Not just, just yet. yet. In yeah. the long term, all bets are off. Right. But the next 20 years, I think we can be highly confident, not 100%, but highly confident in how the labor market will probably unfold. Yeah. Yeah. Now, as you're, you're start, I suppose, starting to think and scouting around what, what your next punt might be, um, what, what sort of tickling your fancy in terms of trends um, and areas that you think might be, without asking you to give too much away, might be ripe for you know, a start? I think there is a lot to be done around former employees of companies. It, it surprises me how few companies run alumni networks. And the companies that do it, do it incredibly well and see a huge benefit from it. But most companies don't do it. And I think that that is a failing and I think I know how to solve it. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to potentially move forward on that. But that's one of three different ideas kind of fighting for mind space right now as I think through. But uh, look, that process of thinking through what's the problem that we're going to address how big of a problem is it? And then what is our potential solution? That is something that as a startup founder, I think through a lot in that framework. And certainly as an advisor or investor in startups, I push companies to think. I was on the phone yesterday with a company that is creating a marketplace of doulas and lactation experts. And I said to them, like, lactation, oh, do as in doula, yeah. right? I, I was thinking, Doula's swords, like, fight. You know, I'm trying to add those two things, doula as in somebody with a sword fighting somebody on uh, a horse. No, no, no. And lactation expert, I could make those two. I mean, you know, you could probably get those two together, be a hell of a party. But uh, they want to, in the prenatal and postpartum world, provide the services because that entirely happens right now via recommendation. It's just you ask your friends who they've used. And if they don't have anybody, you, you scramble and, and you're in trouble. And you know what? That's actually pretty good. It's a pretty good idea. Like that will happen. There will be a marketplace where we'll go and do that. Now, will there be a niche marketplace or will it be a part of a larger marketplace? Who knows? The point being, as I said to these founders, what problem are you trying to solve? And they went on for about five minutes. I'm like, no, give me the one sentence of what is the problem and try to incorporate some data in that. Like 78% of women or 70% of families are unable to provide you know, to get the prenatal and postpartum services they need costing $7 billion. Okay. That's a problem. Uh, how do you solve it? 
And so those are things I think about a lot in terms of HR tech, which is certainly the area I will stay in and uh, play with some ideas. Wow. Well, uh, I wish you luck. I'm sure. I'm sure you'll be successful. What, what's your run rate? What's your sort of strike rate so far of the of the startups you founded? How many have succeeded? Well, there were technically four. First one failed miserably and basically bankrupted me. And so, oh wow! You know, if you're going to do four and you're going to have one of them wipe you out, have it be the first. That's that's my 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 other big lesson, other big takeaway. Uh, the second one was a reincarnation of the first and we built it and eventually got sold to Salesforce and it was a good outcome. The third was a just an app I built and we ended up selling it to uh, a TV show and so it was okay. Uh, and then the fourth was work market. And so technically I'm batting 70, I'm at 75%. So we'll see if we can increase our average to 80% with uh, the fifth and probably last. Right. That's, that's, that's good. Really bankrupted you. So, um, uh, yeah. interesting. How, how, how do you, you know, we talk about resilience a lot right now, especially in these days. What, you know, is, it, is there Oof. anything you can share in terms of how you came back from that? Like, well, I'll say this, you know, as a founder, you think everything's on you because in a lot of ways it is. The company will succeed or fail because of your efforts. You have to put the company on your back at multiple points and just push forward. And one of my favorite quotes in startup world is the key to success is you get knocked down seven times and you get up eight. And there's something about it that I love because it's very, it's just very evocative, right? You could see the person getting knocked down, having to stand up and dust themselves off and keep going. And there's something so wonderful about the numbers and as much as you will get knocked down again and again and again. And when you think about the equation of is this company going to be successful? There are a lot of variables in that equation. Some of them are dependent. Some of them are independent. Some of them are unknown. But the largest variable in that equation is you. And so the other reason, by the way, I love that that quote is it's mathematically incorrect. If I got knocked down seven times, I would get up seven times. But for so, And it's on T-shirts. Get knocked down seven times, get up eight. I'm like, mm, no, you get knocked down seven, you get up seven. But be that as it may, leaving that aside for a second. Um, the thing is, is that, you know, you there's this whole ethos, there's this whole narrative of it's on you and you've got to make it work. And it kind of leaves out that there are so many people willing to help you if you picked up the radio, called for help. Mm -hmm. And I didn't think about that enough in the startup that failed, that there were people willing to help me. And when it went down, all I did was ruminate on the things that I screwed up and how I messed this up. And. I let down my investors. I let down my team. And as I was wallowing in that depression, I still wasn't picking up the radio and asking for help. I just was beating myself up, not, not leaving my apartment, not getting out of bed. Some days you're just, you're really down in the dumps. And eventually, you know, if there are all these circles of people that could help you, if you ask, you know, there are right. investors and advisors, and then there are your 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 team and then there's your your friends and then there's your close friends and then eventually there's your family and so it was my family it was my older brother that kind of basically okay. kicked down the door he's like what are you doing get it together it's like why what's so different about your life right now oh, i lost all my money and he's like shake it off right. i mean he was a little bit more compassionate than than that and uh he's the one that put out his hand and picked mm. me up and I stood up, dusted myself off, and said, all right, we got to keep going. 
That's a beautiful story. I don't pretend it's easy. No. And is your is your brother in the sit? Does he is he got a similar risk appetite or is? Uh, well, he is a wellness professional. He's a yoga teacher. Okay. And he and his wife actually have a business that provide corporate uh, corporations with with wellness services, and they mm. they do very well with it. And they actually work with some of the most you know renowned companies in the world. Uh, so he is in theory an entrepreneur as well, right? But, um, in a very different context. Right. Right. Well, that's that's great. So call on your brother, <laughs> or at yeah, least let your brother sales. in. Yeah. If all else fails. But the thing is, is that if I had reached out, many other people would have put their hands out to help. Mm. And you just don't reach out. And so you got to pick up that radio. Like there is no officer in the NYPD or any other police force anywhere in the world that doesn't hesitate for a second to pick up that radio and ask for help. No yeah. officer's like, oh, I'm not asking for help. I'm going to take these people down by myself. No, there's not a single officer anywhere that does that. They radio into Central and they say, here's the situation, I need backup. And there is no reason that anybody should think that they are braver than these men and women that are out there defending uh, you know, us every single day and keeping us safe. So yeah. don't try to be, be, be braver than them. Pick up your radio and call for help. I love that because there must be, you know, many people right now, you know, maybe they're isolating, they have cut off from their families, you know, feeling it right now. Well, we know from no some question. of the talking about data, right? We've seen, we know that yeah. loneliness has gone up in certain segments of society. So great advice. Um, all right. Well, thank you so much. I'll flush, I'll flush uh, the book up once more. Uh, end of jobs, you know, very easy to read and full of data. Um, some wonderful anecdotes as well. Um, and then, of course, you've got a bunch of essays which you didn't really touch into at the end of the book. Um, well, maybe we should just touch on that and the prize that you've got related to that. Well, I'll say this. Writing a book sucks. It just sucks. Like, it is not fun. The number of times that I would be reading through what I wrote, you know, in a big printout, and I'd just throw it in the air and storm out of the office and turn to my secretary and be like, I'll clean it up. Don't worry about it. I'll be back tomorrow. I was just so angry because I, I hated it. I hated writing. Very happy with what I produced, but I hated the process. And my publisher called me up a couple of years uh, ago, so maybe a year before the book finally came out, and was like, you don't have enough. Like, this is too short. You need more. You need to do more research. And I was like, no. Like, I've said everything I'm going to say. Like, this is the book. And a friend of mine actually came up with the idea of, you know what, you've interviewed hundreds of people, the people actually shaping the future of work. Why don't you ask them what they think the world looks like in 2040? And I was like, oh, my God, that's brilliant. That's awesome. I'm totally going to do that. I'm going to Tom Sawyer this. I'm going to get them to paint the fence. And so I reached out to a bunch of them. And surprisingly, almost everybody I reached out to said yes, that they would contribute four or five pages on what they think the world of work looks like in 2040. Many of them couldn't do it once they finally asked their company's approval because they had to sign a legal agreement with me and the publisher. Many people tried to do it and then wrote an email being like, dude, sorry, I can't get this done. So good luck. But we did receive a number of submissions and we called it down to the, the, the best 20. Because look, I have my framework, history, data, how companies actually engage labor. I use that, I make predictions. I like my framework. I can defend everything I predict, but I don't pretend it's the only way. 
to do it. And I certainly know that these people that wrote are much smarter than me when it comes to these things and probably in many other ways. And so we came to the uh, idea, you know, I have the great pleasure of serving as an advisor to the X Prize, and I'm a huge, huge fan of what they do. And so I thought to myself, you know what? I'll make this like an X Prize challenge. And I looked for sponsors and I couldn't find anybody. So I had to personally do it. And as a member of the leadership team at ADP at the time, uh, ADP, because I was still a member of ADP when the book came out, ADP made me actually physically take the money, put it into a separate account so that the prize is funded. They were concerned that uh, I wouldn't actually give the money away. But there's now an account sitting with the money that under any reasonable scenario will grow to the $10 million prize in 2040. And in 2040, each of the authors gets a vote. They can't vote for their own piece. God willing, they'll all still be with us, myself included, because uh, certainly I get to vote. And whoever is the most correct in their prediction is going to win the $10 million prize. And so, like I will tell you, chapter 10, which incorporates all their essays, is by far my favorite chapter. Yeah. It's not just because I didn't have to write it. <laughs> it's very high on the list of why I like it. But it's just amazing. I mean, this, these are heads of the largest staffing firms, heads of the largest labor union, you know, heads of trade associations, largest investors in this space. Um, the CHROs of some of the world's largest companies. Mm. And they are amazing in what they predict. And they're all over the place, by the way. We have some people that have a very utopian view of the world. Yeah, exactly. It's such diversity of thought, right? Some people have a very dystopian view of the world Mm. in 2040. And one of the smartest people I know in the space, uh, who is one of the leading attorneys in the space, William Hayes Weissman at Littler, I mean, I'm going to be a bit reductionist here, basically says, nah, it's all the same. Not that, nah, not that much is different, which is obviously not really what he says, but that's the way I kind of view his piece is the middle of the road piece. Right, right. Well, it'd be interesting to see. Uh, well, if this podcast is going back, it's still going in 2040, maybe get you on and see who's won. Um, Absolutely. All right. Well, thanks again, Jeff. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, Such a pleasure. Yeah. I hope some people got it out there. We got tips on uh, building startups and, and recovering from failing ones as well as uh, the future works. That's great. Um, all right. Thanks. We'll put notes. Uh, we'll put links to the book. Is there anything else you, you want to point people to? Uh, you know, I actually just after 20 years of owning the website, jeffwald.com, I finally put content up on it. And so okay. you can buy the book directly on Amazon or you can come to jeffwald.com. It just right. brings you right to Amazon. It's no, no difference. Okay. Uh, but you can also see some of the other articles I've written um, and speeches I've given. Excellent. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.